And this morning we move a bit out of the book of Romans. We are going to turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, reading from verse 32 to verse 34. The writer had been describing the various exploits of heroes of the faith in Scripture. And he is toward the end of his discussion of these heroes. And he says there in verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. On this Father's Day, we take time out to look at Samuel, a man who wore many hats, a man who could well be described as a father in Israel, a man of God, and we need men like Samuel in our time. We need men like Samuel in our time. Let's begin by talking about his background. His background, first of all, his parentage. His parents were a godly, devout couple. It's evident as we read 1 Samuel chapter 1. In fact, 1 Samuel 1 verses 3 and following records that every year his parents would go to the sanctuary at Shiloh to worship and sacrifice to the Lord. In verse 1, his father Elkanah is cited as Jehoram son of Elihu. Now why is that important? Why is that information important? It is important because in 1 Chronicles 6, 27 and 28, Elkanah and his son Samuel are shown to be descendants of Levi, which explains why throughout 1 Samuel, Samuel is seen as carrying out priestly functions. 1 Samuel chapter 1 gives details surrounding his birth. We learn there that his mother Hannah, one of two wives of Elkanah, was not able to bear children, which, of course, was a source of continual grief to her. You see, in the context of that day, that was considered a social stigma. It was somewhat of a scourge not to have children. Verses 10 and 11 tells us how that driven to the distress, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly, vowing to the Lord that if he should give her a son, then she would give him to the Lord all the days of his life. Well, the Lord did answer Hannah's prayer, because according to verse 20 of chapter 1, 
The Bible says in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Right there, we know the meaning of Samuel. If you know anyone by the name of Samuel, it mean, the name means asked of God. Samuel, we see, was born in an atmosphere of prayer. His mother was a praying woman. And this, no doubt, was precisely that which made him a man of prayer, man of prayer that he was. It is said that piety begins at home. And as a biblical truism, this was certainly the case of Samuel. He was blessed with parents who set him an example of what it means to worship the Lord, of what it means to be devoted to the Lord. Fathers are called in the word of God to be pace-setters of godliness in the home. They are called to lead their families in the ways of the Lord. Theirs is a responsibility to be exemplary to their children. And this cannot be overemphasized, especially in this permissive age in which we live. We need fathers, fathers, fathers who are godly, who are godly men. We have in our time a great deal of what we might call effeminate men. And yes, I know that's not a politically correct thing to say, but it is a fact that our men, by and large, are being feminized. They are feckless. They are limp-wristed when it comes to taking the lead in the home and in society. Samuel had a tremendous spiritual legacy, not only because he had a praying mother, but because he had a godly father who ordered his family according to the will of God. And so from an early age, quite an early age, Samuel was exposed to the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4 compared with Deuteronomy 4 verse 9. From his early years, he knew not only the blessings of his parents' love, as suggested in chapter 2 verse 19, because we notice in chapter 2 verse 19 that whereas his mother had left him under the care of Eli, she would take a coat to him each year, coat which she herself had made. But more important, from his early years, Samuel knew God's purpose for his life. For from birth, his parents, as we learn from 1 Samuel chapter 1, dedicated him to the service of the Lord. Indeed, no sooner had she weaned him, a process lasting anywhere from three to five years, during which time Hannah would have been spiritually nurturing young Samuel, than she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh and presented him to the Lord she left him there under the care of Eli the priest. And all of these formative influences, we could say, laid the foundation for Samuel's life and ministry. Now in 1 Samuel 2, we begin to see the effects, the, 
blessed effects, the outstanding effect of Samuel's godly training, the training he received from his parents. First Samuel chapter 2 verses 12 through 17 tells of the horribly wicked lives of Eli's sons. Verse 12 of First Samuel chapter 2 says that they were worthless men, worthless, that they did not know the Lord. That's the language that is used in scripture. They were worthless men. They knew not the Lord. That's the equivalent of saying that they were unsaved and unregenerate, grossly irreverent. They showed utter contempt for the sacrifices of the Lord, according to verses 13 through 16. And this they did continually, as their father suggested, as he himself had learned in verse 22. On top of that, these young men, these young priests, were, we could call them sexual predators, because they abused their influence by sleeping with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting, verse 22 tells us. And so evil were they as they occupied the priesthood. Verse 17 summarizes their atrocities as follows. The word of God says, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offerings of the Lord with contempt. They were grossly irreverent men. And the question is, how did Samuel, how did young Samuel fare in all of this? How did this affect young Samuel? Despite such conditions, as we see in the word of God, Samuel faithfully held his place before the Lord. Undistractedly, he dutifully carried out his service to the Lord Against the backdrop of such ungodly environment, 1 Samuel 2, verses 11, 18, 21, 26. You'll want to know these verses. 1 Samuel 2, 11, 18, 21, 26 repeatedly call attention to his spiritual growth and devotion to the Lord. So while they were carrying on with their wickedness, with their ungodliness, with their irreverence, Samuel was growing before the Lord. He was there ministering before the Lord. That is what those verses repeatedly tells us, tell us. Well, let's consider the times of Samuel, the days in which Samuel lived. Samuel's birth and ministry occurred at a time of glaring moral and spiritual declension in the land of Israel. It was a closing period of the judges, that whole stretch of time when according to Judges chapter 17 and verse 6 as well as 21 and verse 25, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And as evidenced by the spiritual apathy of Eli and the wicked degenerate lifestyle of his sons Hophni and Phinehas, the priesthood we could say was marked by rank apostasy Hence, as the priests were ungodly, so were the people. And needless to say, such a time at which Samuel began his ministry was one of very little prophetic activity. Because we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. 
There was no frequent vision. And you know what the word of God says in the book of Proverbs? Where there is no word from God, where there is no prophetic vision, the people do what? They cast off restraint. Those were the kinds of days in which Samuel lived, administered. And not surprisingly, it was also a time when foreign powers would, from time to time, invade, oppress, and even occupy the land of Israel. That's why God raised up these men known as judges. This, of course, was a token of God's judgment on the nation, oppression from foreign powers. We see that motif time and again, particularly in the Old Testament, that one of the signs of divine judgment, when God is judging a nation, he causes that nation to come under the oppression and tyranny of other nations. It was in such spiritually dark age, beloved, that God raised up young Samuel. And what is the lesson here we can glean from all this? What's the lesson here? The fact that God raised up Samuel for such a time as prevailed in the days of the judges. And the lesson, I believe, is this. That regardless of how spiritually and morally dark the days might be, God has a way of reserving for himself a remnant individuals who will remain faithful to him, who will serve him and uphold his testimony. For instance, at a time when the entire world was corrupt and was steeped in wickedness, in gross wickedness, in immorality, God reserved for himself Enoch, of whom we are told in Genesis chapter 5 verse 24 that he walked with God. He raised up at that time a man by the name of Noah, who Genesis chapter 7 verse 1 says of him that he was righteous before the Lord during the time of the monarchy, that is the period of the kings. He raised up such godly men as King Josiah and King Hezekiah to maintain a light, a testimony for his name during those dark days. He raised up prophets such as Elijah and Elisha, who, in the face of prevailing on godliness, could take a stand for God, who could champion the ways of God, who could champion the cause of God in the land. On such a dark time of Israel's history, the question is, in what capacities was Samuel used by God? How did God use Samuel during these dark days of apostasy? Well, in general terms, his ministry embraced three offices. The offices of prophet, priest, and judge. Note, I did not say prophet, priest, and king. And that's significant. Because there's only one person who ever held all three offices. And that was, you know, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. No king in Israel functioned as prophet and as priest. No king functioned as prophet and king. Here it was, Samuel functioned as prophet, as priest, and he almost came close. He functioned as a judge, but not as a king. Let's consider, first of all, his role as a prophet. Although Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15, is referred to 
as a prophet, although he is said to be a prophet, Samuel is formally recognized in Scripture as the first of the prophets. You say that's contradictory. Well, let's explain. Before we get to explaining, you see, for example, in Luke, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 3, verse 24, he, he writes that all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him. The text we read this morning, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, speaks of Samuel and the prophets. Acts chapter 13, verse 20, states that God gave Israel judges until Samuel the prophet. In fact, as 2 Chronicles 35, 18, Acts 3, 24, Acts 13, 20 suggests, the expression Samuel the prophet became the fixed designation of Samuel throughout Israel's history. As a prophet, Samuel functioned as a seer, that is to say, as one who had the gift of foresight, for example, ever before he met Saul, who would later become king over Israel, Samuel received from God detailed information about Saul. He was able to tell Saul, well, just exaggerating a little, he was able to tell Saul a lot of things about his life. Why? Because he was a seer. First Samuel 7, verses 8 and 9, 12, 23, he exercised the prophetic function of intercession just as Moses did and just as was expected of prophets as suggested by Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16, as well as 27 and verse 18. So that whereas Moses was a prophet in a rudimentary sense, Samuel was, we could say, in a formal sense, the first of the prophets, how in that his prophetic utterances and activities took on the full-fledged prophetic features of foreseeing, foretelling, and forthtelling. In other words, prophetism comes to full bloom in Samuel the prophet who could be a seer, that is to say, he could see things before they happen, he could foretell events before they happened, and he could tell forth the word of God. So in that respect, he is formally the first prophet. Second, we consider his role as a priest. He functioned not only as a prophet in Israel, he functioned as a priest. Samuel, as we said, was the first man to bear the functions of both priest and prophet. As a boy from the priestly lineage of Levi, he's seen in 1 Samuel 2, verse 11, verse 18, chapter 3, verse 1, carrying out priestly services under Eli at the sanctuary at Shiloh. In such passages as 1 Samuel 7, verse 9, chapter 9, verse 13, chapter 10, and verse 8, chapter 16, 1 through 5, he offers sacrifices on behalf of the nations, an activity that was reserved for whom? For the priests. In his priestly role, he anointed two kings, namely Saul in 1 Samuel 10, verses, verse 1, verses 17 through 25, chapter 11, verses 12 through 15, and he also anointed David in chapter 16, verses 12 and 13. So he functioned as a prophet, he functioned as a priest, we consider thirdly his role as a judge, his role as a judge. Samuel was the last of the judges. These were men who were raised up by God before the monarchy, before the institution of the monarchy, and their task basically 
was to call the nation back to repentance, call the nation back to God. They were to deliver the people of Israel from their oppressors as well. They were to adjudicate disputes among other tasks. Samuel, we are told in 1 Samuel 7 and verse 6, judge the people of Israel at Mizpah. And this office of a judge, he exercised his entire life throughout the length and breadth of Israel, as we read in verses, 7, verses 15 through 17 of 1 Samuel 7. As we read earlier in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32-33, he, along with Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, conquered kingdoms and forced justice by faith. Samuel, then we learn, was also a man of faith. Even as he exercised these functions in Israel, particularly as judge in which he would enable Israel to go up against her enemies, he did all of that by faith. Now the various roles of Samuel, his prophetic role, seems to have been most dominant, seems to have been the foremost of all his roles. And this would explain why scripture memorializes him as Samuel the prophet. You'll find a few times in scripture he's, he's characterized as Samuel the prophet. Not as Samuel the judge, not as Samuel the priest, but as Samuel the prophet. That was his dominant function in Israel. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, we learn of his call by the Lord to be a prophet. He is called as a prophet, we are told, came while he was a boy ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. He was probably about 12 or 13 years of age. That was the typical age of adulthood at that time. And the Bible tells us that while lying down, apparently one night, Samuel heard his name called on three successive occasions, not realizing that it was the Lord who was calling him. After he had gone to Eli on three occasions, supposing that it was Eli who had called him, Eli, sensing that the Lord was indeed calling Samuel, instructed him that if he were to hear the voice again, he should res respond Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. When he again heard the voice calling his name, green and inexperienced as Samuel was, he replied, Speak, for your servant hears. What we notice there, he left out the word Lord. On account of the wickedness of Eli's sons, and we, we have mentioned how wicked these young men were, God gave to Samuel a message of judgment, a message of judgment that he was to deliver to Eli, a message of judgment that would come upon Eli's family. Now imagine, my friends, you were in Samuel's position. What would you do with such a message? God prefaced the message by saying, I'm going to do a thing in Israel that the ears of all who hear it are going to tingle. I tell you, it was a horrible message of divine judgment. God told Samuel how he would bring about the death of Eli's sons, how God would take away the priesthood from Eli's family. And the question is, 
What would you do with such a message if you were asked to deliver such a message? How would you deliver it? Particularly to a senior, particularly to one who had been like a father to you. How do you deliver a message of God's judgment, severe as that message was? In verse 15 of 1 Samuel 3, we read, Samuel lay until morning. You wonder why he never went and he never told Eli that night. Got him up out of sleep and, you know, say, you know, I have some real bad news. No, what he did, he lay until morning. Maybe wishing that morning would not come. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. Here's what the word of God says. And Samuel just as we expected, Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. We can sympathize with him, right? We know what it is. We know what it is when we are going to deliver bad message to someone. We don't want to hurt their feelings. We don't want to upset them in any way. And this, my friends, was actually Samuel's first test as a prophet. Because one of the acid tests of a true prophet of God, one of the ways we know and we are able to identify a true prophet of God is that that person truthfully and faithfully declares the word of God even when it is not pleasant to do so. Even when one finds it, uncomfortable to do so, even when there's a measure of apprehension to do so, the true prophet of God, and may I say this, the true preacher of God will not fail to declare the whole counsel of God, even if it hurts. I tell you this, the true prophet of God, listen this, will not be afraid to preach the truth to himself, even when it stabs his very heart. The true man of God, the true prophet of God, is a truthful man, a man who is faithful to the word of God, a man who declares the whole counsel of God without respect of persons. We need preachers like that in our time. In verses 16 and 17, we see that as spiritually apathetic as Eli was, he nevertheless, and this to his credit, he nevertheless encouraged the young boy Samuel to not hold back in delivering the word that God had given him. We read, but Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, and he said, here am I. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. I think we have a very valuable lesson here for every would-be preacher of the word of God. That one of the things that fires the true prophet of God, the true preacher of God, to declare the word of God, regardless of the consequences, is the realization. Notice what, what Eli said to Samuel. He said, may God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. Preachers have a 
have an awesome responsibility before God to declare the truth of God. You know why? What is it that fuels them? What it is that propels them? It is the fearful prospect of standing before God and giving to God an account of one's stewardship of one's ministry. Verses 19 and 20, if you look at verses 19 and 20 of 1 Samuel 2, these verses relate how that with this and other revelations from the Lord which came to fruition, Samuel earned the respect, he earned the reputation of a true prophet of God. Here's what scripture says, verses 19 and 20. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground, and all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. In fact, look at the beginning of chapter 4. We have somewhat of a summary of Samuel's entire ministry. The Bible says there, and the word of the Lord came to Samuel. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Samuel had proved himself faithful in discharging his duty as a true prophet in declaring the word of God to Eli. And God honored him. God established him as a prophet in Israel. So much so, the word of Samuel. Notice, not the word of the Lord, although it was the word of the Lord, but the word of God coalesces with the word of Samuel. Why? Because Samuel is truly sympathetic in, in accord with God's will, God's purpose as a servant of God. In terms of his ministry then, Samuel, we could say, was a man who was thoroughly dedicated to serving the Lord and serving his people. As a prophet, he knew what it was to hear from God. He knew what it was to hear the voice, the word of God. And more so, he knew what it was to faithfully and courageously declare God's word. And because of this, because of his fearlessness as a preacher, which grew out of that experience when he confronted Eli by the grace of God with the message of God's judgment, as such he was not, notice later on in his ministry, he was not remiss in boldly rebuking Saul, the king, as occasion required. In fact, here's what the word of God says, 1 Samuel 15, 20 to 23. Uh, no, 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 not really. So I'm, I misspoke. He was not afraid to tell the truth, even to the king. And notice, he confronted, first of all, Saul for his impatience, for his disobedience. We see that in 1 Samuel 13, 5 through 14. And then also for disobeying the express command of the Lord, who had, who had then rejected him as king, in 1 Samuel 15, 20 to 23. Now, now, what was the high point of Samuel's ministry? Around the 20th year of his ministry, Samuel led the entire nation of Israel into a great spiritual revival. We learn of this in 1 Samuel 7. After 20 years of ministry to the, to the people of Israel, he led the nation in a great spiritual revival. The preceding years had been long years of sore defeat, oppression at the hands of foreign powers. You remember what happened after Eli had died, after he fell on account of God's judgment on his household. He died. His sons were killed in battle. What happened? The ark 
of the Lord was taken by the Philistines. And the ark, the visible presence of God, had been absent for, from Israel for decades. With the return of the ark of the Lord, which years before had been captured by the Philistines, and with the passing of Eli and his sons Ophni and Phinehas, who had died as a result of God's judgment. We see that in 1 Samuel chapter 4, Samuel, according to verses 1 and 2 of Judges 7, he reinstated the priesthood. That's the first thing that he did in terms of a spiritual revival in the land. Samuel had the ark brought back to Israel. The ark, the visible manifestation of God's presence, God's powerful, awesome presence. And the first thing he did when the ark came back was to reinstitute the priesthood. If a nation is going to be rebuilt, we don't start with the military. We don't start with economics. We don't start with the social issues. You know where we start? We start with the spiritual. Why? Because when a nation is out of sync with God, everything else goes awry. So the very first thing that Samuel did with respect to nation building, with respect to bringing about order in Israel, was to reinstate the priesthood. We see that in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel 7. Notice what else he did. Verses 3 and 4. He called the nation to a thoroughgoing repentance from idolatry. He says, put away your Baals, put away your Ashtoreth, put away the false gods among you and serve the Lord. He called the nation thirdly to prayer fasting and confession of sins, verses 5 and 6. And something interesting happened at that revival convention. I call it a revival convention. Something marvelous happened at that revival convention. Because it was during that time, that convention, that revival convention at Mizpah, that the Philistines, apparently thinking that Israel at this time was rallying together to come against, to come against them, that is the Philistines, they were rallying together for battle. They ventured to launch an attack against them, that is against Israel, defenseless as they were at worship. Let me tell you, the last thing these people were thinking about at Mizpah was military business, military action. They were there to do business with the Lord. It was a spiritual convention of sorts, and we are told there that when the people of Israel learned that the Philistines were coming against them, because, of course, they thought that Israel was rallying together for battle. The people of Israel, we are told, pleaded, they begged Samuel to pray for them that God would deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. The Bible tells us that as Samuel sacrificed, that as he prayed to the Lord, verses 10 and 11, the Lord sent, miraculously, a violent thunderstorm causing the Philistines to flee. Following which, the Bible tells us in verses 10 through 12, the men of Israel pursued and struck them down, bringing about significant victory for Israel at Ebenezer. And you know something? This effectively, this incident effectively brought an end to Philistine 
invasions, according to 1 Samuel 7, 13, and 14. With this victory came years of peace for Israel. It was Samuel who was instrumental in bringing about unity in Israel, who was instrumental in bringing together the nation, was instrumental in bringing back the nation to serve and honor the Lord. And by all accounts, this revival at Mizpah, this revival and this restoration of the people to the Lord at Mizpah, recorded in chapter 7, was perhaps the greatest that ever occurred in Israel since the time of Joshua. So that was a great feat for Samuel. Samuel, this was the high point of his ministry. This was the high point of his prophetic career calling the nation back to repentance, bringing the people to confess their sins, to put away their idols, and on top of that, giving them in the same event, giving them at the same time, victory from their oppressors, the Philistines. Among Samuel's other spiritual accomplishments on behalf of the nation were the following. He appointed the sons of Korah, some of the sons of Korah, to be gatekeepers to the tent of meeting. We learn of that in First Chronicles chapter 9, 17 through 22. He, obs- he oversaw the observance of the Passover in a marked way that was worth remembering. Even the days of King Josiah, we see that in Second Chronicles 35 verse 18. You say, what's so significant about that? Here was a man whose heart was centered on the worship of God and who taught the people, he actually inspired the people to get back to the true worship of God. We need men in our time who will preach God's word, who will call people to repentance, and who will teach people what it is to truly worship the Lord. All in all, if it were asked, what was it that fired? What was it that fueled Samuel? What was it that brought about success in his ministry? It was this, his overriding passion for the glory of God and for the good of his people. He had foremost in his heart and mind the glory of God and the good of his people. Well, let's look finally very quickly. Let's assess his life and character. It's one thing to talk about a man's ministry. It's another thing to talk about his character. There are many people today, many men, who are ace when it comes to ministry. They, grow, they, they preach great sermons. They have large churches. But it's a quite another thing to speak of their character. Well, let's look at the character, the life, the character of this man, Samuel. Undoubtedly, as we read the text of Scripture, Samuel was a man of God. It's evident that he was a man of God. He was a man who was devoted to piety. He was a man of perseverance in godliness. Why can we say that? Go back earlier in his life, and we saw that though he lived uh, among and saw the gross irreverence of Eli's sons, he saw their irreverence, he saw their immorality, He did not follow their evil ways. A reminder to us that our environment need not shape us. People today say, well, you know, there's no way I can live for God in this home. 
There's no way I can live for God in this community. I have to get out. There's no way I can live for God in this school. This place is horrible. This place is ungodly. Here's the point. Samuel lived at a time of gross irreverence, of gross immorality, of gross wickedness, and yet Samuel, by the grace of God, maintained his piety, maintained devotion to the Lord. Our environment need not dictate our character. I want to use this as a means of challenge and comfort to you this morning to say to you, look, wherever you are, the grace of God, it is said, will never lead you where the, what is it, the wisdom of God? God will never lead you where the grace of God cannot keep you, something like that. The providence of God, I think I get it right, the providence of God will never lead you where the grace of, where the power of God cannot keep you. Here it comes, the providence of God will never lead you where it cannot keep you. For the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation, the word of God says. First Peter chapter 2 verse 9. Let's go back to his earlier life. As a boy, how would we characterize Samuel? He was respectful of authority. He was respectful of authority. For example, though he saw the spiritual ineptitude of Eli, the priest, a man his senior, notice he did not disrespect him. He did not disrespect Eli his senior, he showed due deference to and respect for Eli. At Eli's call, notice chapter 3, verse 16, he replied, Here I am. It was the equivalent of saying, I'm available for service. What do you want me to do? His life was marked by grace and compassion. Even when he delivered to Saul the bad news, the grim news, the sad news that the kingdom had been torn from him because of his disobedience and would not return with Saul as Saul requested of him. Notice First Samuel fifteen twenty three to 31, he was afterwards, afterwards he was gracious to Saul in following Saul as Saul requested. Evidently, read the context very carefully. It seems that Saul was afraid of embarrassment, of humiliation. And Samuel, as it were, said, at least I walk with you. And he walked with him. He was a man of grace. Even when Saul fell, even when Saul lost the kingdom, he grieved. He stayed up all night. He was in sorrow over Saul. Godly a man as he was, Samuel kept growing in his spiritual Life, as indicated in 1 Samuel 2, 21, chapter 3, verse 19. Like his mother, he was clearly a man of prayer. Samuel was a man who prayed. He was a man who prayed. 1 Samuel 7, verse 5, at that revival convention, as I call it. 1 Samuel 7, verse 5, verses 8 and 9, 12, 7 through 19. He's a man who was seen praying. 1 Samuel 12, 17 through 19, verse 23 Chapter 8, verse 6, even when he was not really for the people installing a king because he saw it contrary to the ways of God. He saw them going in their rebellion. God told him, okay, give them a king. And what did Samuel do? He prayed. He prayed. Chapter 15, verse 11, he prayed. In Psalm 99, verse 6, listen how he's celebrated as a man of prayer. In Psalm 99, verse 6, he's cited. In Psalm 99, and verse 6, with Moses, with Aaron, as those who called upon the name of the Lord and was heard. Of notice that in Jeremiah 15, verse 1, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, lists Samuel along with Moses as positive examples of what it means to intercede for a people before God. God, in fact, said to Israel through Jeremiah, he says, though 
Though, though Samuel should pray, though one like Samuel should pray, I would not hear. God was suggesting that not even the prayers of a good man like Samuel, prayerful a man as he was, would help them. Why? Because they had lost their way. They were totally gone. Indeed, such a godly, prayerful man was Samuel, that regarding that occasion when he prayed and the Lord answered him in a powerful, dramatic way, here's what 1 Samuel 12, 18 tells us. And the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. What a thing to say. Yes, we understand fearing the Lord, but fearing the Lord and Samuel. It shows us the depth. It shows us the quality of this man's spiritual life. He lived, as it were, in the presence of God, the glory of God, just as it was in the case of Moses, radiated through his life. That as the people feared the Lord... So they feared Samuel. Samuel was a man who lived close to the Lord. Finally, his life was marked by unimpeachable integrity. Unimpeachable integrity. Because even as he delivered his farewell address to Israel, to all Israel, he could without reservation say to the nation, here's what he said to them, 1 Samuel 12, 2 and 3. I've walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Of, or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Not many leaders today can say that. Samuel says, listen, look and tell me. If you can point a finger to say who has taken a bribe from me. That's a true leader. Testify against me and I will restore it to you. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say where's the money. He didn't say where's the money. He says can you accuse me of taking a bribe. He says I'm not that kind of person. And so by his serving God from his youth until his death. As an old man. Samuel fulfilled his mother's prayers for his life. In fact, 1 Samuel 25 verse 1, we are told that he served the Lord until his death. And at his death, all Israel assembled and mourned for him, suggesting how much he was loved and esteemed. I will close by saying this, that like other characters, and like you and me, Samuel was not a perfect man. He was flawed. In fact, by the time you get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, we are told how that when he was old, he installed his sons as judges. And you know something? They were corrupt. They took bribes from the people. And what happened? That was what actually precipitated the nation to ask for a king. They said, listen, you are old. Yes, step out of the way. We need a man to go before us. No, your sons are no good. Give us a king. That was a big mistake that he had made. Let me just say this. Let me say this. Good godly parents can have renegade children. Good godly parents can have terrible children. And let me just say this by way of reminder. Yes, we are to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But here's the point. Even after we have done that and we have prayed, there is no guarantee that they are going to turn out right. Every time our children turn out right, it is what? It is what? A token of God's grace. And even Samuel, godly a man as he was, godly as he was, a man of prayer, a man of the word of God, a prophet of God, a minister of God, his sons were horrible. 
It's a reminder that we eventually look to whom? The Lord Jesus. Every time we study biblical characters, we are to look where? Ultimately to the Lord Jesus because he was and is the flawless one. He, above Saul, is our prophet, is our priest, is our king. And on top of that, he's our savior, he's our redeemer. If you don't know him today, let me suggest this. You ought to know him because to know him is life eternal. You need him more than you need your next breath. May God give you the grace as you hear this message today to see the beauty and the worth there is in Christ. Amen.